Uh, welcome back, everybody. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Balcony Chatter podcast. I am uh, your host, as always, Andrew McKenney, with my co-host, Tim Taylor. Hi, everybody. Um, today, we actually have a very special guest, and, and I, I've been really looking forward to this for a while. Um, you know, we kind of had this in the works for a little bit here, and, and um, we've been really excited to get into it. So today, we are actually joined by a uh, Providence Bruins legend. And former former Boston Bruin uh, Bobby Robbins. So Bobby, how yes. you doing today? What's going on, guys? Legendary status. All right, that's a good start <laughs> to the podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah, doing great. Thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. How's everything been going with you? I mean, I know I know the pandemic's a little bit crazy right now in the in the world. So how's that been going around your way? Yeah, so I'm I'm actually in the middle of Minnesota, a little town called Alexandria, and um, I know there's a lot of a lot of craziness happening. Um, just to the east of us over in Minneapolis and St. Paul and the Twin Cities. But it seems like we're out here where we're at. It's kind of a rural community and uh, closed off, uh, you know, not closed off, but a, a closed community, I guess you'd call it. And it's its own little area of like 15,000 people. So, I mean, I, I really haven't experienced too much of it here. You know, they just up here in Minnesota, they just mandated the masks about um, about three weeks ago or so. So that's been a bit of a a bit of an issue here with a lot of people and that seems to be the the big talking point but other than that it's more just you know what i'm getting on social media and on the news and you know i'm trying to keep my ear to the ground for sure on what's going on but at the same time and i don't want to get sucked into too much of of negativity and it's it's really easy to for that to happen i feel like so out here for me personally and i feel like for this town where i'm at it seems like life's just trying to get on as normal as uh as we can so we'll, we'll see how it goes hopefully it gets better from here on out but we'll see absolutely yeah man i'm out in la and so it's it's kind of like a type tightrope like that like you want to keep the ear to the ground but you it's a tightrope with o- overdosing on on too much of what's going on so i i feel that in a different regard yeah man i got sucked in last night watching you know sucked in on twitter just watching all the riots and everything and yeah um, yeah, I mean, I want to know what's going on in the world for sure, but it's you can almost get addicted to that stuff too. And I want to get addicted to positive things and godly things. And uh, man, I just I, I realize that that has an effect on me how I feel and how my thoughts are the next day. And who knows, you know, maybe days after that. So today, I actually that happened late last night. I, I was up late, just got sucked into it. And uh, today, I just said, you know what, I'm I'm going to do a fast from social media. I'm not even going to look on anything. And the only time I looked on social media was just about five minutes ago. I signed into Instagram to see your message on there. And I tell you what, man, I don't know what happened in the world today, but I'm assuming it's more of the same what we've had. Um, but I feel pretty good just not really getting sucked into that vortex. And I think I might try and keep this thing going. That's that's pretty awesome because a lot of people can't really say that they do that. You know, it, it people have a hard time disconnecting from um, their phone, from social media in general and, and, the, the fact that you can pull away from that and just kind of decompress for a while is pretty, you know, I'm pretty jealous of that. So you got to come up for <laughs> well, air, right? You know? Yeah. Especially in this climate, man. And it's, it's been, it's some heavy stuff going on for sure. So it, for me, I know it's just easy to get sucked into that. And like, I want to know everything. I want to know everything that's going on. And all of a sudden four hours passes and I've just been watching really taking in stuff into my eyeballs and into my ears, which is, which is pretty damaging to my soul and uh, just some dark and violent stuff. And I finally, um, you know, just, just yesterday, I was like, man, I just gotta, I gotta step back. Like you said, take a breath from this and, 
you know, I'm not going to get any trophies yet. It's only been one day, but uh, I tell you what, I felt, I felt the best I've felt in a long time today, just backing off. So I might have to try and set up some parameters, maybe give myself some, some time restraints, like a half an hour, just to hop on there and see what's going on on the world stage. But yeah, it's just so easy for me. I think for everybody too, engaging on social media, just, we all have it on our phone and in our hands and on our watch. It's so easy to just get sucked into that and thinking that's what real life is when, man, I got, I got real life in my town. I got people, you know, looking people in the eye and trying to make those connections. So that's, that's where I want to start moving from now on. And, um, man, today was a good step. It was a step in the right direction and I'll chalk that up as a win. I'll take it. That's awesome, man. Um, well, so there's so many things that I'd love to talk to you about today. Um, but I figure we'll start kind of with what got you into hockey and, and what, you know, kind of brought you into the, the thing that has ultimately been in your life for so long. I mean, you know, the hockey has brought you what seems like all over the world. I mean, we're talking all over the Northeast, Chicago, Ireland, Spain. I mean, the list kind of goes on. So being a kid from, from Wisconsin, what, what got you into hockey seeing as, you know, there, there's no professional team there. Um, were there players or was there a specific, specifically a team that you loved? Yeah. So I was actually just talking to a peewee team. We had a peewee uh, group of about 25 or 23 peewees come through our rink today. And I spoke for about an hour to these young men and, and I was just saying, I was like, listen, guys, I was just like you. I, you know, we come from, these guys are from northern Minnesota, and I'm from northern Wisconsin. And I said, man, I just fell in love with hockey. Like, I always had a stick in my hand. I'd be, I'd be walking through my house at 10 years old, and I'm stick handling a golf ball and toe dragging under the rocking chair. <laughs> and just, just having these big visions in my head of like, man, I want to I wanna play in the NHL. I want to go all the way. And, and then when I got a little older, I grew up in a, uh, a little uh, northern Wisconsin town called Peshtigo, and it was an awesome place to grow up, but it's a town of about 3,000 people, and I, I never really fit in there. Like, you know, I love the town, I love the people there, but I always felt different being a person of color. My mom's um, Filipino-Spanish, my dad's this big Irish-German white guy, and they uh, they made me this this weird mixture of the two, and so I always felt a little different up there and never really had an identity, and early on, I, I identified with hockey. I said, this is my identity. I'm going to be a hockey player and I'm going to make it all the way and I'm going to get out of this town. And so that's really, I mean, that was a big driving force behind my hockey pursuit, but at the core of it, it was just falling in love with the game. Like we all did, like we're all in love with it. You know, we pick up that stick and shoot some pucks and, and get on the ice and it feels amazing. And that was really all I knew starting at age five. I was in karate of all things, which I think many, many years later translated into my hockey success, <laughs> but I was in karate and loved, loved that. And all of a sudden my mom just saw an article in the newspaper that said, um, you know, hockey, hockey in Marinette, Wisconsin. And, uh, I live in a border town between upper, uh, Northern Wisconsin and the upper peninsula of, of Michigan, uh, Marinette Menominee, the Marinette Menominee chiefs have this, uh, had a hockey program and, my mom said, you want to try it? You'll have to quit karate. And I was like, yeah, yeah whatever. I, I was willing to try anything. I'll try it. And, you know, I got on that ice. And as soon as I stepped on there and had that stick in my hand and pushing that puck around, I fell in love with it. And then that really just started the hockey pursuit at age five. And then it would, you know, finally you get to be a, you know, a big fish in a small pond and it's time to move on somewhere else. And so I went from that small town down to Green Bay, Wisconsin, for my youth hockey which is kind of a, it's really a big hockey hotbed now, but back in those days it was just starting and 
uh, got there and, you know, just started progressing up through the ranks and then, you know, made a decision to, to leave and go play high school at a prep school, Culver Military Academy. And so I left, left home at age, um, age 15, which is so common for, for people chasing that hockey dream and, and went out there and that was really the start of it. The start of this adventure where I said, I'm really going to do this. Like I'm 15 years old. I'm just a boy. Like I want to be a man. I think I'm a man, but I'm really not. I'm just a boy, but I'm on this adventure. And, and I left, left my house and went on this, uh, went on this roller coaster ride. And like you said, took me all over the place and it's been such a blessing. And, uh, but yeah, it all started there in that little tiny town in Northern Wisconsin, old logging community. And, um, just fell in love with it early. So I was telling these kids, man, I'm just like you. I was 10 years old once and had this big dream. And so now having accomplished that dream, I'm just being used in a, in a different way to try and point these kids in the right direction. Cause I was on my hockey path. I had a lot of, you know, a lot of twists and turns and made a whole lot of bad decisions and veered off path and kept coming back. And so now it's one of my goals is to inspire a new generation of hockey players to hopefully not make the same mistakes that I made and to be able to impart some wisdom on those youngsters and um, trying to show these, these young hockey players that they can be set apart in the hockey world and in the world, which um, both can be pretty dark places. And so we're trying to bring up a, a new generation of hockey players who can just go into that, into the world at large and into the hockey world, especially and just shine a light in there and to change the hockey culture. So I kind of veered off there, but that was how it started. And I kind of took you all the way to the end. So no, that, that's perfect. That's the end of the interview. All right, guys. <laughs> See ya. So, so as Tim said, he, he's based out of LA right now. Um, he's originally from the new England area. Um, but I, I still live out here. I live, I live, uh, kind of close to somewhere that you spent a lot of time. Uh, I, I know that you were, you spent four years playing for UMass Lowell and I actually drive by there every day on my way home from work. Um, nice. so, you know, it, it's cool because, you know, looking into your hockey journey a little bit, I, I had seen that you were the captain for UMass Lowell and, and I'm thinking, you know, is that the point where you thought, you know, maybe I could make something of, of this hockey thing. I mean, I'm nobody just gets a captain spot, regardless of if it's college or pro, um, without having some form of loyal, or, you know, hard work and dedication and, um, that leadership for, for other players on their team. So was that a, a point where you really saw that, hey, maybe this could be something that I've always dreamed it could be? Yeah, like I, I was on my hockey journey, went off to prep school and like, you know, got in some trouble there, had to leave school, bounced around, went to a midget AAA team, ended up making a, you know, getting cut from a bunch of tryouts. I wanted to play junior, ended up at a tier three junior level. I love telling this part of the story just because of hockey players listening. I, I'm dealing with a lot of junior players now. Everybody wants to play in the USHL or the U show, they call it now, these youngsters. and um, But some of them have to go play Tier 2 in the North American League, which is a, a good league too. And then some of them have to go play Tier 3, you know, in the NA3, and everybody wants to be in the highest league. And so part of my story was I had I went out, and the only team I could make was out in Great Falls, Montana, the the, uh, in the America West Hockey League, the A-Dub, they call it. It was a legendary league, now defunct, um, but a big fighting league, a tough league. Like they said, you go out there out West and really become a man out there. So I went out there at 18 and, you know, learned how to fight and learned how to play good hockey and to be, you know, just to be a rugged player. And so I went, had a good year there. We won the championship, which is a good lesson that um, people who win trophies get, get promotions. That's just the way it works in the hockey world. And 
Um, went from tier three to signing a tender in the USHL with the Tri City Storm, which is you know which is big time hockey. I was like, whoa! I'm in a year later. I'm in the USHL. So I love stressing to guys like in one year you can make such a huge leap in your hockey. Like you know the big picture of things I care about development. You know, becoming the best man you can, spiritual development. But the catalyst for that is hockey. Like we all want to play the highest level of hockey. And so I try and teach hockey players, you know, just on my own experience, wherever I'm at. All right, here's where I'm at. This is this is the reality as I'm a tier three junior player. Here's where I want to be. It's not just going to happen by uh, by some some wish or something or, or, or blind luck. Like I'm going to have to take proactive steps to get to that level. And so early on in my hockey climb through the hockey ladder, I like to call it, I, I realized that if I implement things into my life and into my hockey every single day I can get a little bit better just for today like we had guys at our rink practicing today and I was like like guys did you practice 100% today or did you give it 90% 95% because we can all still look good and impress our coaches and have a good practice at 95% but when the game comes and it's going at 100% you're not going to be ready for that 100% level and that 100% speed yep so I learned early on to, to give it every day 100%. Man, all of a sudden, seven days later is a week, and then four of those is a month, and then six, seven, eight of those, and it's a hockey season. And if you get a little bit better every single day, it, it really adds up. And I know it's kind of corny, and we've all heard it before. Like, yeah, you just get better every day. But I, I found that if I implemented that, and I was like, all right, as long as I'm taking steps in the right direction every single day and compounding that and, and adding to it every single day, man, I was like – I went from, you know, tier three to the USHL and I was like, whoa, this could really happen. I want to play college hockey. And so I implemented that in the USHL, probably one of the worst guys on the team skill wise, but I was tough and I worked hard. I I gave it everything I had every day. And then all of a sudden I was at UMass Lowell, signed a a partial scholarship, 40% scholarship with an option that, you know, based on performance, it would go up if, if it was warranted. And so I was, uh, I came into UMass Lowell as a freshman and didn't play the first five or so games. I was a healthy scratch. One of the worst terms in hockey is the healthy <laughs> scratch, man. Oh, it hurts my soul just to hear it. <laughs> you know, that, mean, that means the, on the roster board, you're way at the bottom somewhere on like the fifth or sixth line. They write your name, Bobby Robbins, on the board. And I'm healthy. I'm ready to go, coach. But they, they draw a line through it and scratch it out. That's what a healthy scratch is. Oh. Basically epitomizes the, the notion that you're not just you're not good enough, buddy. And so healthy scratch first five games. And I noticed I was at UMass Lowell and I started complaining. I was in a group of the guys who weren't playing and, and we were out one day complaining. And I had this epiphany moment where I was like, Oh man, I'm one of the complainers right now. I'm in the complaining group. This is not good. And I, I separated myself from that. And I made a promise to myself that day. I said, I will never complain again. I will never do this. If, if coach Blake McDonald, if coach isn't going to play me, I tell you what, I'm going to play tomorrow's practice like it's game seven. And so I got, and I was just a freshman, you know, you're kind of nervous. You don't want to rub people the wrong way. Man, I came out there on like a, a random Wednesday flow practice and I was flying, man. And I was, <laughs> I was playing with snarl and piss and vinegar and getting in people's faces and laying the body. Like I was, I've always been a checker and I was laying people out. I remember I smoked one of the big captains on the team and I was just, laying guys out 
playing like a, a menace, you know, and like like how I play, how I got to play. Yep. And I tell you what, man, next that next weekend I was in the lineup and never left the lineup except for suspensions here and there for for big checks. But um, <laughs> freshman year, freshman year, I got in and and you know just kind of like learn learn college hockey. That's a big step from junior D one in hockey East, and then you know sophomore year battled a few injuries but gained knowledge and experience. And then what you were talking about, Andrew, you said it was ever that moment. And I never really even thought about about um, the NHL or anything. I remember, you know, I never watched the Bruins. I was a Red Wings fan, man. Stevie Y, Sergey Fedorov. Those were, that was my crew the, in the 90s because I lived in the border town without right. the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. So I was always watching the Red Wings and, you know, never really knew much about the Bruins. So I came out to UMass Lowell and, the, you know, the guys would be watching them on TV and, Never really, it was just like a thing, like, oh, yeah, the Bruins are on, whatever, you know. I'm, I'm, I got my life, I'm living here. And um, my my junior year, I kind of had a big year. I had nine goals, nine assists in, in hockey, which is pretty good, pretty decent numbers. And um, my buddy on my team, Kim Bramble, the big Norwegian guy, uh, this guy was a, was a machine. And he's actually the skills coach now for the Boston Bruins, which is pretty pretty crazy. And we came into UMass Lowell as freshmen together, lived on the 17th floor at Fox Hall and, you know, really know each other. That's my brother. Junior year, I'm sitting in the, in the locker room after the season. You know, it was a, it was a good season. We were top 10 at one point in the country and we, uh, we beat, we swept BC. They're number one. We beat them in a home and home and we, we celebrate, celebrated like we won the Stanley Cup. Yeah, and that's got to be awesome. big. <laughs> and it was awesome. We were, we were rocking the streets of Lowell for sure. <laughs> and um, I'm sitting there in the locker room, man, and and there was a sign that was in the locker room, and it said, I can, I will, in these, in these giant blue letters. And I had seen it a million times, and I was like, yeah, yeah, I can, I will. That's kind of that's cool. That's inspiring. And then Kim Bremble, he came up to me, and he goes, you know, Bobby, if you double that amount of goals you got next year, you'll be in the NHL. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, dude, you score 18 goals in Hockey East, you will be in the NHL. And that was an aha moment for me. That was a click. It just clicked in my brain. I said, whoa, I only have to score 18 goals. I double my goals and I'll be in the NHL. And like, I looked it up. I looked up the stats of, you know, rugged power forwards who took 18 goals. And I'm like, they're in the NHL. And that's the day. And then I remember I looked up at that sign that said, I can, I will. And I embraced that, man. That became my pulse. I can make it to the NHL. I will make it to the NHL. Wow. And I just became obsessed, really. And, and became so laser focused on that, that I'm, I was walking to campus on, you know, taking the bus to South campus. I got my earbuds in back in those days. I had a mini disc player cause that was just awesome. And I had a mini disc player and, <laughs> and I was just rocking. And in my mind, I'm just saying, I can make it to the NHL. I will make it to the NHL and I can't wait to get on the ice. And like, and I just became consumed with it. And that's when it really clicked. I took it to the next level. I took my training. I took my diet, my nutrition, game film, hockey strategy. I became consumed with making the NHL and repeating that, that saying over and over, I can, I will, I can, I will. And then it just progressed. All that hard work, those daily steps in that direction toward that goal, it really came to fruition my senior year. I got the captain spot and just had a breakout season, leading scorer on the team, you know, male student athlete of the year, MVP, fan favorite award, University of Maine, most uh, respected opponent, the um, University of Minnesota Mariucci tournament, all tournament team, 
it was just me and five golden gophers out there on the blue line getting the trophy. Wow. And all these accolades, it comes in this huge year and I, I leave school early. I go out and play in the American Hockey League with the Binghamton Senators. Really have a good five weeks, 16 games, tuck some goals and some points. Have a really big fight against a veteran fighter, Jamie Pusher. And I just smoked him in the face pretty good and showed that I could that I could fight too. And all of a sudden, it all just happened. And I signed an NHL deal that summer in July with the Ottawa Senators. Wow. And I was like, this is, it's happening. Here we go. And, uh, yeah, I mean that's I guess you can you can lead the way into the next part of the story, but all of a sudden I went I graduated, I came back and uh, got a degree in English writing, and I always took my schooling seriously, wanted to get that degree, um, but came back and left school and said, all right, I'm I'm starting. This is the real hockey journey now. Like I started when I was 15, and that was like the training wheels, and now I'm a pro hockey player, and this is happening, and I got. I got three months till training camp in Ottawa. Like, let's go. I can, I will. And that was my mentality. I, I gotta, I gotta be honest. I mean, listening to how you went from being a healthy scratch to I'm not, that's not going to be me anymore. Um, and, and the, the effort that you put into getting to the point where, you know, you, you were that you win all these, these awards and you make, you, you get it, you get to the AHL and you get an NHL, you know, contract and, and whatnot. It's it's very inspiring for for me and for I'm sure a lot of people listening that um, you know it's it's super positive and it's so great to hear that it was um, something that you had control over as far as your mindset and that seems to go a long way I mean it doesn't just it it doesn't always get you exactly where you want to be but that's kind of where it seems to start and I and I think that that's um, very impressive and and I was you know impressed to hear that sort of side of the story because you know a lot of people once they get down on their luck a little bit or feel like you know I'm not good enough they might just give up but that wasn't the case with you and that was that was awesome I love the whole uh just um oh I just gotta double my goals like you like (laughs) it's not the I can I will I can I will it's the looking at double and being like that's nothing (laughs) I love that that that's mental fortitude I just gotta double my goals yeah oh that's all I just gotta double my goals I love that (laughs) Well, I didn't double them. I ended up scoring 13 that year, but I led the team in scoring, and I guess it was enough. I didn't need to get the full 18. So, um, but yeah, yeah it was all, all the accolades all that mindset. That came didn't hurt. What's that? All the accolades you listed didn't hurt. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was yeah. it was just an amazing year. But awesome. you know, it's a crazy thing. Like being in that moment, I'm looking back at it now with some, you know, with with 2020 hindsight, and you know, all these things. It all came together. It all. Um, you know, all these accolades and then everything like the world's telling me you're the man, Bobby, you know, you're the man and you sign an NHL deal and I got a big signing bonus. And like now I, I have money all of a sudden and man, it, the world's telling me something and it looked really good on the exterior. Like I bought a nice new car and all this stuff, but inside I was really still, I didn't have a, an identity in myself and I didn't have confidence in myself when I was really just scared and I think a lot of those fears um, manifested themselves as addictions in my life. And I was, you know, I was addicted to all kinds of things, drugs and alcohol. And I, I was just a functioning addict, you know, nothing like the crazy drugs. But, you know, I was addicted to the subtle drugs and I was addicted to the party and I was addicted to the chase, you know, chasing girls and just living that lifestyle. And then when I got to pro hockey and, you know, that 
that laser focus of I can, I will, that I experienced my senior year, that became like number four or five on the priority list where all these other things became my priority. Like we trained hard, definitely gave it a hundred percent, you know, Monday to Thursday, but then I was partying all summer, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and I show up to training camp with the Ottawa senators and man, I wasn't, I was out of shape. Like I wasn't, I wasn't dialed in. I wasn't Providence Bruins version of me. I was, you know, I was 13% body fat, you know, a little slow, addicted to chewing tobacco, like not, don't, not knowing how to take care of my body and, and really take care of my vehicle as a pro athlete. And just thinking that by signing that contract, I had made it. And one thing I've learned, which I think hopefully somebody, maybe a hockey player can take this lesson is that I've seen it a million times now and I lived it as well. So many people, when they get that contract or when they get to, you know, they, they sign their commitment to college and junior, uh, they're still playing junior. They already got their commitment. It's kind of like you take your foot off that pedal and, and all those things that got you there in the first place now become secondary and you become um, kind of content with where you're at. And you think that, you know, all these things are just going to come automatically that's kind of the, the place where I was when I went to training camp with the Ottawa Senators and, and really saw like, whoa, what it means to be a pro hockey player and really wouldn't figure that out for until my fifth year pro when things really started to, to happen. So you had mentioned, you know, you weren't quite in the shape that you were in Providence and, and you went through the training camp and um, obviously you had made some adjustments from your time with training camp in, with Ottawa and, and playing, you kind of bounced around the AHL a bit with a, a few different teams. Um, you had that, that stint in uh, Belfast as well, which I would love to talk about, but you, you inevitably land in Providence for a little bit of a longer, um, you know, a more permanent landing spot, I should say. And I think that's where a lot of people know you from as far as in the, the new England area. Um, and, I, I started this whole episode off by by calling you a Providence Bruins legend because I mean you recently made the Providence Bruins all time team um, with a bunch of great company uh, and and I mean speaking from experience I've seen you play at the dunk and I've I had the pleasure of seeing you play for Providence I mean a lot of people love to watch you play and and I mean. It was more, I don't, I don't want to say it was a spectacle on the ice, but it was something that people wanted to come to the games and see. Um, you happened to spend a, a handful of seasons there as opposed to some of the other teams that you played for where it was only a year here or a year there or, or a couple together. But, um, you know, I would love to talk about your time with Providence um, a little bit here. And I know that there's a few, um, you, you still have a few connections with the Bruins. I mean, we want to touch on Bruce Cassidy as well, but um, what was your time in Providence like? I mean, you, you you said that getting there was kind of a little bit different as far as you were in different shape starting out playing for Providence rather than how you were a little bit earlier in, in your career there or in the AHL. Yeah, so how I got to Providence is just a crazy story. So I played four years pro. I played... Yeah, I mean, I'd love to talk to you about the, that year in Belfast. It was awesome, but man, we we partied hard in Belfast. <laughs> like I think a lot happens in Northern Ireland over there, and um, you know that was where I was at. I was I was chasing chasing you know that lifestyle and chasing 
you know, satisfying myself in every way that I could. And then had a really successful year, came home that summer, met this girl who I fell in love with, who's now my wife and the mother of my child. And I was like, whoa, I'm just, I've been an idiot for all these years. And now here's this amazing woman. I think I I love this girl. Like I want to marry this girl. I can't believe I'm saying it. So that was when things started kind of changing and I ended up getting this, you know, a good deal over in the Austrian league playing in, uh, in Slovenia. And she came out there with me and, um, things were great. Like I, you know, I, I wasn't partying like I was and some of my priorities changed in life. I felt like I started to kind of grow up, you know, I was, I was finally becoming a man where, you know, transitioning from a boy to a man, even though it took me so long, I was late in my twenties, but it was happening and things were looking good. But the only thing that wasn't looking good was hockey. I didn't play too much. I didn't do well point-wise. I was, I was hitting guys in that league. It's kind of a soft league, skilled league, but a little soft uh, with physicality. And I was getting like five-game suspensions just for annihilating somebody with a, a huge clean open ice check. And and I was like, man, this is how I play. And, man, you know, the whole time my first two years pro in the, in the East Coast Hockey League and the American League, they wanted me to be a fighter. Everybody's like, you're a fighter, Bobby. You know, you got to fight 20 times a year. And I just couldn't do it. Like, I was always tough. I could fight. I could handle myself. But I was terrified to fight. And I didn't like that. Like, I just, that wasn't who I was. I didn't see myself as that. And so that summer, I didn't get a contract. And it was like my whole life fell apart. A a lot of my addictions caught up to me. I'd been chewing tobacco, two cans a day. I'm pretty much a one-speed kind of guy. Pretty intense. If you you saw me on the ice, that's kind of just how I live my life. I'm an intense guy. Whatever I'm into, I'm doing it all in. And I was chewing two cans of Grizzly Wintergreen a day, just living life. And, and all of a sudden I had a, a cancerous spot in my mouth and I thought I was, had mouth cancer, had to get a biopsy on it. And, uh, you know, I was like, am I going to have to get half of my face cut off? Or like, is this it? Am I going to die? And, you know, if I can be honest, like, I don't know which one of those I'd rather choose. So that's where I was at. Everything fell apart. And I'm, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I'm an atheist at the time and just believe that, you know, you live and you die and that's it. And, um, I walked out of that, that medical room after that biopsy and I kind of looked up at the sky and I remember I said, Oh, please just get me out of this one. Please get me out of this one. And something started happening. Um, I was able to quit chewing tobacco, which was a huge monkey on my back. And that was really the catalyst was that moment. I quit tobacco and I was like, if I can quit this, I can do anything. And I hadn't said that saying that I can, I will. I stopped saying that when I went over to Belfast because that was, that pretty much marked me giving up on my NHL dream. And if we can be truthful here, it marked me for me personally saying, I'm not going to fight. Like I'm, I'm just scared to fight. I'm going to go play in Europe where there's no fighting. And, um, you know, that was, that was the reality. But when I came back and I was like, you know what? I was seeing how the NHL was changing. All those big goons were getting phased out of the game. And I was like, the fourth line checkers can play, man. And I knew I'm a, I knew I was a player. I was like, why am I so scared to fight? And finally, I just got so frustrated with my life, and I had nothing going on. I was like, I want to, I want to have a family. Like, what's, what are my options here? I literally took out a notebook and I made a list of like four or five options. Like, one, quit hockey, get a real job. Two, go back to Belfast. I was like, can't go back there. Way too many skeletons there. And and I don't trust myself there because I actually I want to be faithful to this girl. Like I'm serious about this girl. Can't do that. Do I go back to? Do I try and pu- keep pushing into Europe? Like I, what do I do? I don't even have an agent. Then the fifth one on that list was fight my way to the NHL. And I was like, oh man, that's intense. 
but I knew it. I knew that's the one I had to do. I, I almost had this feeling like it was my destiny. And now I know that it really was um, just kind of in a different way, not the way I expected it to end. But um, I made that decision. I talked to my, this girl who I was dating, who's now my wife. I said, listen, um, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give myself two years. I'm going to go play in the minors. I know I have to play at the AA level in the East Coast Hockey League. And I'm going to fight for real. I'm going to fight all the heavies. I'm going to be a heavyweight fighter. And so I trained and I got in the best shape of my life, like ridiculous up until that point. I took it even more and more ridiculous as I progressed up through Providence. But, you know, I took it from where I was to a whole new level, was able, I got, I stopped partying, I stopped all the drinking and, and all the extracurricular stuff. And I got refocused on hockey. I can, I will. Learned how to fight, trained with a pro boxer, learned how to really throw punches. And started out in the East Coast Hockey League in Bakersfield and just started playing really good hockey and fighting. Like in in the East Coast, I'm a pretty good player. Like I'm a specialty teams guy, first, second line guy. But I was just playing playing the way I play, hard-nosed hockey, and then I would just fight. I'd try and fight every game, the heavyweight. Did a full season there, half a season in the East Coast in Chicago. I worked out a trade so I could be closer to my girl. She was still in Wisconsin working. And then it finally it happened, man. 30 years old, 29 years old, right after Christmas, I got the call up to Providence and Don Sweeney told me to pack my bags for a week. And a uh, funny story. So I was like, all right, we didn't tell anybody on, on my team in Chicago, just my coach knew. So we were on a road trip out to, uh, out to Toledo to play against the walleye. And, um, you know, I, I went out there, played against Tori Krug's brother out there, actually, <laughs> who's a, who's a tough dude, uh, Matt Krug. And, we had had a bunch of fights. Uh, we had two fights before that, and I was like, I think I'm going to fight him for the get the hat trick here. But then I was like, you know what? I'm going to save my knuckles. I'm getting called up. I'm leaving after the game to go out to Providence. So I just played played good hockey, and you know, the team left me in a hotel, and and I was like, this is it. This is it. This is happening. The hockey adventure, like this is starting. This dream that I had two years ago of, of making this comeback, it sounded ridiculous. I was already 30 years old, which is a dinosaur in hockey years. And, um, and now it's happening. I'm getting called up and I was, I was scared. I was like, man, can I even play in the AHL anymore? Like there's some big boys. It's a big jump in hockey and a big jump in the fights, you know, in the fighters in those leagues. And I got up there, flew from, took a, a shuttle from the airport or from the hotel to the airport in Detroit, flew from Detroit to Providence got picked up in Providence, brought to the dunk downtown Providence, loaded up on a bus, drove up, ate some greasy, like, I don't even know what it was, some greasy burger at one of those uh, Irish pubs right right down from the, the dunk, and got on a bus and drove up to Portland to play against the Portland Pirates. And I get up there, and I that's when I first met uh, Butch uh, Bruce Cassidy, and uh, didn't know who he was, you know, knew he obviously is the head coach. So he calls me in the office and he says, you know, Bobby, you know, that we're not trying to reinvent the wheel here. You know, you're a good hockey player. You know how to play hockey. Uh, you know, just uh, give you a heads up. There's a guy out there, Ryan Hallwig. He knocked, uh, knocked our captain out with a concussion and he's just been a real thorn in our side and just keep an eye out for him. And I just, I kind of interrupted him and I said, I got him coach. I got him. <laughs> and so, <laughs> The funny thing is, is that my rookie year with the Binghamton Senators, we I had a meeting with my coach, and they're like, "You need to play like this guy. Like, like if you want to play in the NHL, you got to be Ryan Hallway." And so I watched him when he was playing um, for the Rangers, and he was ha- he had all these um, huge fights with Colt Nor, and he was a tough guy. And I was, I, 
he was my guy. I watched him. I was like, I want to be Ryan Holwig. You know, like I'm a little bigger, but just skate around like a heat-seeking missile, smash, and when it comes time, fight. And, uh, you know, obviously, but be dependable in the defensive zone and play good hockey. But, you know, at the end of the day, be a checker. And now all of a sudden I'm playing against him. I'm like, oh, man, I'm fighting Ryan Holwig tonight. And I was really nervous. And uh, first shift of the, uh, my first shift, I was on the fourth line. I finally get off the get off the ice. I make a beeline from the – get onto the ice. I make a beeline from the bench toward the, the offensive zone where the puck was. And just the timing of things. I mean, you know, I – now I know it was all God's timing on this, but I didn't understand why it was all happening back then. But my first shift as a Providence Bruin, Ryan Hallweg is a left winger. He's he's skating up the ice in his defensive zone on his left side wall, right about the hash mark, between the hash mark, top of the circles and the blue line. And his defenseman rims a puck around, gives him an absolute grenade. This thing is just bouncing on end. And he's turned back with his head all the way turned to his left, reaching back for this puck right at the moment that I'm flying off the bench 100 miles an hour <laughs> and I drove my shoulder right into his throat, like right into his neck and upper chest and just blew him up. The biggest hit ever. And he's flying, everything went in slow motion. He's flying backward. And before he's even, he's still airborne flying backward. And I hear him go, we're going. <laughs> and he's, his gloves are flying off. It was like the Matrix, man. That always happened to me in fights. The Matrix would, would engage and it would just slow down. He's flying backward. We're going. The gloves fly off. I, I shed the bucket and the gloves and I'm standing there. I'm, I'm ready. Like I'm, I'm willing to die for this, man. I, I've trained for this harder than I've ever trained. I can, I will. Like This is the real deal. This is my life and livelihood. And I'm looking at this guy, Ryan Holweg, who I'd watched all his fights, and I was scared of him. And um, he's got this big Viking beard, these really intense eyes. And I'm squared up, and he throws this left punch that just misses the tip of my nose. Throws a little left hook, and it, it, like, it came so close, and it came so fast, it kind of surprised me. It made a sound through the air, like a snapping sound. It went and flew right by my face, and that snapped me right into game time mode. And we come in there, and... We it's start like snow, chucking snow them and salts right there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it, it dialed me right in. I was engaged, and I smoked them with a just a pie in the face and and TKO'd them and dropped them. Wow. So and, so uh, how 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 hyped up does the bench get for something like that? I mean, you're talking about the guy that they want you to go after for the in the first place, and you go after him right away, and you get right to him, and that has to energize your team like crazy. Man. I had guys talk to me later and they're like, they didn't even know who I was. Cause I was sitting right behind the coaches. Like, you <laughs> know, they, they thought I was a new trainer on the team or something. You know, like I literally just got on the bus, didn't say anything. I was, had my earbuds in first shift. This happens. And, and I served my five minute sentence and I come back to the bench and there was this moment where they were all, they were all looking at me. There's like, it, everything slowed down. Everyone was just kind of looking at me. I kind of looked around at them. And like you've obviously may have heard my mic'd up videos. I used to cuss like a, a sailor when I was playing. But I looked over at him. I looked at the team and I just said, well, F that guy. And they all kind of went, yeah. That's awesome. And, you know, literally from, from that moment, I was a Boston. I was a, a Bruin, you know, and yeah. the team embraced me. And uh, Bruce had talked about it before how once I got there, the team played a little bit taller and a little bit tougher, you know, because they, they knew they had me out there and I was going to go to war for them. 
And that's really how it happened. I packed for a week and, and just never left and just kept signing contracts and, and really established myself in that league. And there was just something about it. You know, the, the, um, the Bruin fan base in, in Boston and coming from Lowell, you know, I had a fan base there. Wherever I played, the fans just really took to me. I think it's, you know, obviously I was aggressive and I had some huge hits and then, you know, some fights. But I just always, I, I like to think that I just always played with my heart on my sleeve and was never, you know, never the best player. But nobody was going to outwork me and nobody was going to outhit me. And, you know, you might be tougher than me, but I'm going to go in there and I'm going to chuck him. I'm going to chuck him, you know, toe to toe. And for whatever reason, the fans just always embraced that. And there was something about Providence. It, it became my, my second home. And I love playing in the dunk. And like you said, you experienced that there was something special happening there. And I was just getting better and better at hockey and, and more um, finely tuned at the skill of hockey fighting. And it was, you know, it all just came together where I finally at, it reached a point where I signed a two-year deal with Boston and I was a legit pro. It took me nine seasons, but I became at 32 you know, I was like, well, I'm a pro now. Like if I would have been that 32 year old who came into camp in Ottawa, man, it would have been a different story. I would have made that team for sure. But for me, it just, you know, like I, that path that I was on, there was a lot of winding, winding roads on that. It just took me that long, but all of a sudden it all culminated into that moment in 2014. Yeah. I mean, you know, all the way leading up to that, just, I, I feel like this is something that I, I need to touch on quickly is you know you you're talking you're out there giving everything you got you're putting up some insane penalty minutes in your years <laughs> in Providence I mean we're talking uh 150 minutes in 33 games and 316 <laughs> in 74 games 221 in 68 games I mean these are just I mean these are numbers that Terry O'Reilly would be proud of if if we're being <laughs> honest here so I mean there's no question that you're turning heads regardless of whether it's in the AHL or the NHL. I mean, this is these are numbers that people can't deny or things that fans like myself and Tim, you know, we're, we're big, um, big bad Bruins fans and things like that from back in the day. These are things that we, we love and we, we live for in hockey. And, and obviously uh, fighting is going down a little bit in, in the league these days. But, I mean, you were tearing it up in the AHL and it turned the heads enough that, you know, you made it to the NHL. And as you said, I mean – 2014 all, all your hard work paid off I mean you you finally cracked that opening night lineup as the oldest rookie to ever do it at 32 and that's that's amazing that's impressive I mean you worked so hard to get to that point like what what was that feeling like to finally get what you've been working so hard forever for I mean just to see it happen because I mean it it takes it takes faith is what it is you know so many years ago, I guess, I guess that whole journey took about four or five years back after, after that year in Slovenia, I was just, I was lost, a lost human being saying, man, this is what I'm going to do. I, I, nobody believes me. People are laughing at me. I was calling coaches in the East coast, like trying to, trying to get on, trying to get weekly contracts and you know, nobody was willing to take a chance, but I believed it and my wife believed it. And, and that took, uh, that took faith. And then to see it happen five years later, it just was, I mean, it was the greatest feeling in the world. You know, I'll never forget. I called my wife and I said, I had a one-year-old uh, child at the time and a pregnant wife. And I said, Samantha, I said, our lives are about to change, man. I just made the NHL, you know, like my life was about to change. Yeah. And, 
you know, as, as soon as that happened, it, it disappeared pretty quickly after a week. And I mean, that statement of our lives changing was, I had no idea how truthful that was. It just wasn't the direction that I thought things were going to go. And like I said, it's, it, it was God's, it was God's sovereignty, his timing on everything and ultimately a part of his plan. And I had spent my whole life feeling like I was chasing a destiny of playing in the NHL. Like that's what I was destined to do. But yeah, and I think that is true. Um, but it was all part of a bigger picture of something that I could never even have seen or imagined. Um, but yeah, the feeling of it. And, you know, I had my, I had my NHL jersey on today as I was talking to 20 something, 10, 11, 12 year old peewees. And in the reality of things, I played three games in the NHL. I played 500 games professionally in the minor leagues, three games in the NHL, all that work for those three games. And I spent a lot of time after my career ended, you know, having pity, self-pity, like, why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to me? But now six years or five years after that, to be able to put that jersey on and have 23 young hockey players locked in on what I'm saying as I'm telling them just truth about what's what's going to happen in their hockey climb, truth about what they're going to experience in their life, and spiritual truth about what's really important in this world and what really lasts. That's what that's what it all means to me. And then I, I look back at Providence. I'm a I'm an English major, so I'm a words guy. I didn't I didn't realize it at the time. Providence, literally the word providence means the protective care of God. So this is this is what happened, you know. I'm in Providence in, in this town called the protective care of God. And for my career to end, you know, after only three games with a career-ending concussion and just really a mental collapse, and I spiraled into a, a massive pit of drug and alcohol abuse, depression, post-concussion syndrome, paranoia, suicidality. Like I was in a, I was a mess. I call it the pit. I was in a dark place and all I wanted to do was just drown myself out with weed and alcohol. And, you know, in that place for me to be broken and go from the top of the world. And I had a lot of pride. I had a lot of pride, um, and thinking that I had, I had earned that myself. Like for sure. I worked hard for sure. I hit that heavy bag and I trained for hours and hours and hours, but I had this mentality where I was like, I did this. I earned it. Nobody's tougher than me. Nobody's taken this from me. That was literally, literally my mentality going into that training camp, um, in 2014. And then, you know, being humbled and saying, well, it's not in my control. I, I don't control everything. I can control what I can control, but ultimately God's in control. And, um, I think I needed to be humbled and brought down to that place of desperation where I actually called out to God and, and that's when my life changed. And, um, I've been, I've been living that life now for five years and looking back on it, that's what Providence means to me. It's so, it's a place I hold so close to my heart. And now knowing that it's literal definition is the protective care of God. I realized it was where he was preparing me for his greater purpose in my life. So I, I know we don't have a lot of time left with you. I don't want to, you know, tie you up too long, but I, I, I want to talk about that because, you know, you, you ultimately get to this huge peak where you play these get you get, you make it to the NHL, you play with Boston. Um, you have this heartbreaker of a, of an injury. I mean, 
I, I was really, you know, I'm a, I'm a diehard Bruins fan. I was at the, the first game, um, the home opener that year. Um, and, and I was really pulling for you. You know, I had, I had such high hopes because I saw you as a player prior to that. Um, I love your style of play. I thought that you would bring such an awesome, um, you know, leadership to the bench and, and just get the guys riled up and all that. And, you know, it, it was great to watch you play. And I, and I wish that, you know, things had gone differently and obviously, um, unfortunately they didn't, but, you know, at that point, after your, your career ends in, in professional hockey, you move into this other path of life where you start to take on more of the, a religious aspect to your entire life. And that kind of brings you to where you're at now. So I know that there was a long journey in between the end of the hockey, the, the professional hockey career and where you are now. But, you know, how did you get to where you're at and you know, do you feel like this religion kind of saved your life? Yeah, I mean, it was a crazy journey. After my hockey career, I was just lost. Like I, I had told you before how I identified myself. I had no identity except for as a hockey player. And when that got stripped away, I was I was lost. And I was uh, I was addicted. I was just drinking heavily and smoking weed and, and searching through the, for the truth through psychedelics and you know, having just mental breakdowns and having violent outbursts and, and not at all being a leader for my family and life really fell apart for about a year and a half. And, um, yeah, that, that lifestyle, it led me out to Colorado to pursue the legal weed scene out there. And, you know, I, I had been using weed, you know, I, I told myself I was using it to uh, help with the concussion and everything. And I think there is some truth to that, but really I was using it just to numb myself over into a state of oblivion to, to not have to grasp the reality of what had happened to me. And so I was out in Colorado and I was just getting stoned out there and, you know, experiencing that legal weed scene. And man, I was, we were just bouncing around from town to town with my family and we were thinking about moving out there and I think from my wife's perspective, she was so lost and broken. It's really a miracle that our marriage survived. Um, but she, she was like, well, at least when he's stoned, he's not like violent and smashing holes in the wall, you know, like, okay, we'll just numb him over. I think that was her mentality. And so she was looking for a change too. I, I dragged her out there to Colorado and I was in a hotel room one day and I, I looked up um, in the nightstand and there was a Bible in there, a Gideon's Bible. And I had grown up in a church, but um, not a real biblical church. And um, by the time I was a teenager, I got into the world, what the world had to offer, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And I chose that, man. And um, I rejected God. I became an atheist. But as I, as I, um, the closer I got toward that NHL um, fulfillment of that dream in 2014, I had really got into spirituality and the new age like I was doing all kinds of new age Eastern meditations and um, adopted this worldview that I was like the God of my own universe and I was controlling my destiny. I was manifesting my reality and this is happening because I'm causing it. I'm like my own God. And I picked up the Bible, which says really the exact opposite to that. Um, and I looked at it and I said, I don't believe a word of this stuff. I don't believe this Jesus guy. Like I'm not interested in this crap. But, I mean, God was grabbing a hold of my heart, and he was just pulling me in his direction. And so I just kept having all these thoughts of, like, why is this relevant in the world today? How is this old 
two, three thousand year old book even relevant? Why is it? Why is the King James Bible the number one selling book of all time? Well, because humanity is just a bunch of slaves, and I don't want to be a slave. I don't need a crutch. And I was having all these thoughts, and finally I realized I, I'd never read it for myself. And I was like, well, you know what? I'm just going to read it for myself. So I got into, you know, read through Genesis and the creation story, and I got into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the New Testament and started reading the Jesus story and really finding out what the gospel is, the good news. And I'm reading about this guy, Jesus Christ, who claimed to be God in the flesh, the Son of God, who came to earth to live a perfect life, the life I could never live because all I can do is sin against God's holy standard. And I and the whole time God's revealing my depravity of my heart, my sinfulness. I had so much sexual immorality and you know a lifelong pornography addiction and just living that party lifestyle and drugs and alcohol. And He just showed me my my wickedness in my heart, the darkness in there. And then I'm reading about this guy Jesus who ta- who says I'm going to take all that from you, Bobby, all your sin, all your darkness, all your regret. I'm going to live the perfect life you could never live and then die the death that you deserve to die because of your sin on this cross. And then I'm going to die on that cross and raise from the dead three days later. And all you have to do is believe in me, put your trust in me as your Savior, your Lord and Savior, that I did that for you, and you'll get all your sins forgiven. You'll be in right standing with God because you will receive Jesus' perfection, a transaction that takes place where he takes my sin, and I receive his perfection, and I get to live forever with him in eternity instead of in eternity in hell. And that's the gospel right there. That's the good news. And so I'm reading that, and I still didn't believe it. You know, there's going to be people listening to this who don't believe it. There's going to be people listening to it that say, praise the Lord, hallelujah. And I was on that other side, and I said, I don't believe a word of this, but I was just stewing on it, and God was working on me. I was just getting stoned thinking about this stuff. And I went, I went through this progression where I was like, this isn't true. Could this be true? What if this is true? I think this might actually be true. And... At this time, God's showing me just how true, my true state of who I am, because I always thought I was a really good guy. Like if I was in a room or in a locker room, I would be the guy saying, why can't everybody be more like me? If you could just be more like me, Tim, if Andrew could just be more like me, the world would be a better place. Because I thought I was a genuinely good guy, but God had other plans and he showed me my, the depravity of my heart and showed me who I really am. And the blinders got lifted off of me one day and God revealed his truth to me that he is true and uh, the first thing that I felt on my heart was that I, I needed to get sober for the first time in my life. And I went out camping, kind of long story, but I went out camping in the woods, uh, just started driving toward the Blood of Christ mountain range, the Sangre de Cristo mountain range. I, I came back to the hotel, mind blown, like frantic, telling my wife, I figured it out. I'm so close. I'm right there. Just give me three days. Give me three days. I'll be back in three days. Left him, left him in the hotel. She called my dad and was like, Bobby's lost it again. He's having another episode. I think he's going to kill himself. Wow. Oh, geez. And oh, I mean, that's where we were at in oh, reality. Wow. I'm, I'm like, man, I just found out this, this God, this Jesus in this Bible that I'm reading is actually real, man. I thought it was fake my whole life. And so I drive out to the mountains, camp out, man, I fast, fast for 40 hours, no food, no water. I'm just reading the Bible. I'm praying. I don't know what I'm doing. I wake up one, one morning uh, on the second day I'm out there. And I, some darkness, just this dark demonic force got released off of me that night. And I was, I felt light. I felt God's presence in my life for the first time. And I, I just pick up my Bible and I start walking and I'm singing all these old hymns that I used to know as a kid and just, just praising God. 
And all of a sudden I, I realized that I don't know how long I've been walking for and I haven't eaten or drank water in 40 something hours. And I'm at 6,000 feet elevation and it's October. So it's really cold up in the mountains, but it's still kind of hot cause the sun's so close and I'm like sweating, but I'm cold and I start getting dehydrated and exhausted. And I realize that I'm lost out there. I have no idea where I am. I'm horrible with directions to begin with. So I wandered around lost out in the mountains for about seven hours all through the day until dusk. And, and I just went through this ordeal where I was passing out and losing consciousness and experiencing massive dehydration, massive exhaustion. And I've never been so thirsty in my life. And it's just such a metaphor to hunger and thirst for righteousness, thirst for God's living water. And, um, I was just put through this ordeal. I ended up going up to the top of this mountain thinking I could go up and over instead of wandering around. I just I was like, I just know I can see my tent if I get up to a higher elevation and I get up there and I'm just surrounded by a, a carpet of green trees and I'm hallucinating and trees are just flying around my eyeballs. And that's when it dawns on me that I'm going to die up here in the mountains. This is how I die. And wow, God just kept exposing my wicked, wicked, sinful heart. And I was going to go to hell. That hell is real and I'm going to go there. And not only that, that's where I deserve to go because that's just God's that's God's justice is that my crimes against him deserve a punishment and that's what his punishment is. So all this reality got got revealed to me, the veil got lifted off my eyes. And at the top of this mountain, you know, I had a mountaintop experience literally and I dropped down onto my knees and, you know, I just forty eight, fifty hours before I had just learned that it was true. I had no idea even what to do, but I called upon the name of the Lord. I just cried out to Jesus and I said, Jesus, save me. I'm crying. I'm like, I'm going to die up here. Like people are going to think I killed myself. My family, I got a one-year-old girl. It's over, man. And I'm like, Jesus, save me. If you save me, I give my life to you. I will live my life for you. I believe you. I need you to save me. I need a savior. And after I prayed that prayer, I really, that's really the first time I prayed in my life. I called upon the name of the Lord and from behind me up above the clouds, a ray of light came down right over my left shoulder and it came down like a, like a beam and shined on a giant tree at the bottom of the mountain. And I felt this, this, uh, still small voice in my heart say, keep your focus on the tree. And I was like, all right, I got to get from here to that tree. But I was literally at a 10 out of 10, had nothing left in the tank and stumbled and crawled my way down the mountain, got to that tree that was still glowing from this ray that was coming from above the clouds, uh, a sunbeam, a carpuscular ray, I guess it's called, carpuscular ray. Now I know what those are called. Um, came down and shined on that tree, and behind the tree was the path that I had gotten lost from. And I got back on the path, which is such a metaphor, and um, and I said, all right, God, I give my life to you, but I have no idea where I am. I, I'm dying here. I need you to get to, me to my tent. And I literally went tree, and then I felt that still small voice on my heart, keep your focus on the tree. So I went down the path, tree to tree, literally 10 feet by 10 feet, went from, I'd be like, I need to get to that tree. I put my focus on the next tree up the path, got to it and collapsed and passed out and lost consciousness. Woke up, went tree to tree for forever. And eventually I came around to bend and there was my tent. And that's where I had my water and I, I got rehydrated and I was, destroyed. I had to go to the emergency room for exhaustion, dehydration. Wow. And that was in 2016. And that's how I became a Christian. I got, I called upon the name of the Lord and I got saved. I, I got born again and, and became a new creation in Christ. 
If anyone is in Christ, they are, they are a new creation. The old things have passed away, and behold, the new has come. And the old sins that I used to love and, you know, everything I used to love, and now I had a different attitude, and I didn't like it. I didn't want to be that way anymore. So God just grabbed a hold of me and, and started molding me, uh, you know, becoming less like me, less like Bobby, and more like his son Jesus. And that's what the Christian the Christian walk is all about. It's not religion and, you know, wearing your nice tie and going to church and looking good in front of all the, you know, all the community. It's about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and putting to death the deeds of our sinful bodies and just glorifying God with our lives, with our thoughts, with our words, and with our actions. And so that's where I'm at now. It's been four years on this path that I'm trying to do that. And, man, I tell you, whether for listeners who have not experienced that, listen, don't take my word for it. The Bible says, let let God be true and every man a liar. So I could be lying to you, but we have the word of God. It claims to be the word of God, the Bible. Pick up a King James Bible and read that thing. Just read through John, read through Genesis and John and see if God speaks to you through that. And that's what it took for me. You know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God is what the Bible says. And I heard the word of God for the first time. And just like that, God gave me the faith to finally believe in him and to receive the free gift of salvation that Jesus offers through faith in him. So it, it's such a fascinating story to hear how you went from, you know, hockey to to where you currently are and all of the things in between. And and it's, you know, it, it it's very interesting to me, too, how you went. You've had so many high peaks in hockey and low parts as well. And then you completely change your life to, you know, change the priorities in your life to something else. But you circle back to hockey as well. And now you're you're working with youth and working with, you know, with God and with, with hockey and you kind of put them both together. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, I, I take no credit for changing those priorities and changing the trajectory. That was all God working in my life and him just showing me mercy and grace and he gets all the glory for it. What a loving God that, that God loves us. And that uh, while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. That's, that really blows my mind. And um, before I headed out to Colorado, I actually, I, during one of my manic episodes, during one of the dark times, I grabbed all my stuff, man, all my books, all my old yearbooks and pictures, everything. And I made a big bonfire in my parents' backyard and I burned everything. And I was going to burn my hockey gear too. I wanted no part of hockey ever again. I was done. And my wife wouldn't let me. She's like, don't burn your hockey gear, Bobby. Don't burn it. I think she might have been thinking maybe she could sell it in a pinch if, if we needed some money or something. But, um, you know, she must've known. And I was like, all right, I won't burn it. And then, then we went out to Colorado and I, you know, I got saved out there. And, you know, after that, my priorities changed. I said, all right, God, what do you want with my life? I'm yours now. I give my life to you. And after praying that prayer, pretty crazy. Right after I prayed that I got a text on my phone mysteriously after praying that prayer, I'll do whatever you want, Lord. What do you want from me? Ding. Get a text on my phone that says, Hey, come coach. Uh, you want to come coach hockey in Spain? Got this from an old scout that I knew from years and years ago, Toby O'Brien. He was a, a Buffalo scout and does training now in Providence, uh, ocean state hockey. Great guy. He had a connection over there and thought I'd be a good fit. Mentioned my name. They offered me this head coaching job in the Spanish national ice hockey league. Spanish NHL. I didn't even know there was hockey in Spain, but I was like, all right, is this where you want me to go back into hockey? And that was really my foot back in the door into the hockey world. And I mean, I could talk for another three hours about how cool that experience was 
maybe we'll have to save that for another time. But um, ended up coaching, you know, you know, getting uh, getting my feet wet behind the bench, and and that was a whole new experience. And you know, that door closed unfortunately, and I was praying. I was like, all right, God, keep opening doors and closing doors, depending on Your will for my life. Ooh, that's a powerful that's a powerful prayer. Open doors and closed doors, depending on Your will for my life. Door closed came back home and same thing. I'm like, all right, what do I do next? What do I do? And just seeking the will of God. And uh, there's a, there's a cool Bible verse I'll share with you. It says, um, it says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not on thine own understanding in all thy ways, acknowledge him and he will direct thy paths. So I'm like, all right, if I just do those things, his word tells me he'll direct my path. And, um, you know, he led me into to ministry with FCA Hockey, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes Hockey. And we're out here in Alexandria, Minnesota. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a fusion of true, true faith, Christianity, the real Christianity, not, not the fake stuff. I hate the fake stuff, man. And you know what? Jesus hated the fake stuff, too. He called out the religious fakes of his time. And uh, we're trying to do it for real here and have a personal relationship with Jesus and find out what it really means to walk it in the hockey world and to train up a new generation of, of players who are really good hockey players. We got guys here. We, we run a high school team here, a U18 and U16 team. We got guys going to play in the USHL, you know, guys who are on the radar to big time schools like North Dakota and hopefully will play in the NHL. But now we're, I'm here, Tim Jackman, he played 500 games in the NHL. He was a big fighter. He's working here and coaching here. And so we're these two guys who've been through the muck and the mire and have lived the life um, of, of that hockey culture and just wickedness and depravity. And God grabbed a hold of both of our hearts. And now we're trying to train up a new generation of hockey players to be set apart and let them know that there's a different way that they can live, that they can, they can live in a, a God-pleasing way. And, man, that's not to say you can't be tough because I tell you what, the toughest man to ever walk the face of this earth was a guy named Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He took the entire wrath of God for humanity's sins. Nobody can do that. If I got called to do that, I'd, I'd piss my pants and recant on my faith in an instant, guaranteed. But Jesus didn't do that. He took the entire wrath of God, and he's the toughest guy to ever live. And that's what we try and teach our, that our students is that here's your role model. It's not this guy. It's not these hockey players who are living that, that lifestyle, the hockey culture. It's, it's Jesus is your role model, and you can do it right as a hockey player in a God-pleasing way because he's a tough warrior too. And um, that's, the, that's the goal now is just you know, trying to impact the hockey world for Jesus. And we do that through a school that we run called the North Star Christian Academy. And we do that through our ministry called FCA Hockey, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. So we run camps all summer and have just all kinds of um, programs and we call them discipleship programs to help people grow in their knowledge of God and their relationships with Jesus. And, and of course, in their hockey, which they're going to get, you know, world-class training from people who've played in the NHL. So I actually learned about the stuff that you're doing with uh, FCA hockey through your YouTube channel, uh, which I believe is Bobby Robbins pro. Is that correct? Yeah, we got to get some subscribers on there. Bobby Robbins Pro, B O B B Y R O B I N S P R O. Yes. Yeah, so we just started that YouTube channel. I, yeah, I filmed a day in my life in the ministry. 
I, I highly recommend people check out that channel because it was super cool to see, like you said, the day in the life video kind of give everybody a rundown sort of of what you do now um, with with this program and uh, maybe what you plan to do in the future and even some other cool stuff in there like, you know, the challenges that you're putting up. Um, it just it's it just cool content. And I I can only imagine that you're just going to keep putting out awesome stuff. So. Highly recommend people check that out. Again, Bobby Robbins Pro uh, YouTube channel. And then, of course, you're on all of the social medias as well, right? Yeah, I'm all over the place just trying to put the message out. It's Bobby Robbins Pro across everything. And, yeah, we're, we're starting this YouTube thing. My, wife's, uh, my wife does all the video editing, so I film it. And I always walk around with a GoPro filming myself doing crazy stuff. And we figure, you know what, like, I'm, I don't know where, what direction it's going to go, but it was just with the direction that the world, I feel, is going in. I'm like, man, I just want to put out something right now that's going to maybe bring some joy to somebody and and not just be spitting venom and, and negativity. And so we're just going to have fun with it and see where it goes. And, you know, hopefully God will bless it. And um, but it's you know, we're getting some getting some hits and getting some subscribers and we're going to keep it going. So I think the next I just took a vacation out to the Black Hills in South Dakota, which is unbelievable. It's a I shouldn't tell everybody, but it's an absolute um, a gem, a hidden gem out there, um, right by Mount Rushmore. We were camping out there for a for a week in a tent, and um, we went gold panning for gold. Wow, that's awesome! And I found a chunk of gold. That's so awesome. it, it's only the size of probably about like a a pinhead, uh, worth probably about a dollar fifty, but. We, uh, you know, it's like the real deal, panning for gold like the old timers do. And I took my family out there. So I think that might be the next video, just uh, sharing that experience with us as we went out panning for gold out in the Black Hills. Well, I, I can't wait to check that one out for sure then because, I, you know, I keep checking back on the channel to see what's new and looking forward to new content and all that. But, um, I mean, look, we could talk for hours on end, I feel like, and you had touched on, you know, there's plenty of other things that we – we could talk about um so we would love to to have you back on at some point uh, we really appreciate you coming on here and talking with us this was so much fun um and you know sharing all of your experiences with us and again we could talk for hours we'd love to talk to you again yeah let's do another hour sometime yeah, if you're it. up for it man that was awesome i yeah, really I'm appreciate you it. sharing your story man yeah thanks a lot guys i appreciate it too and i uh, i'm down too maybe we can talk when the when uh, the bees win that Stanley Cup, let's we can, go. We can yeah. have a let's go. celebration podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we would love to, but thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it, guys. God bless you guys. Didn't see it coming, got me.